like to invite the rest of you, please, to uh, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse 37, Luke chapter 6, verse 37. Um, If you picked up a study guide this morning, you may note that it happens to be the same one as two weeks ago. Uh, I'm not entirely senile. That was uh, for a purpose. (laughs) I had a pastor friend that went through a very, very stressful time in his life, and um, when he had preached the identical sermon three Sundays in a row without knowing it, uh, they started seeking ways to get him some help. Uh, (laughs) Well... I'm uh, preaching this with knowing it. I don't know if that makes it any better, but anyway, at least I know what I'm doing. Uh, I felt like uh, two weeks ago that I really didn't get a chance to go into this in the depth that I wanted to, and I didn't get a chance to finish some of the thoughts, and uh, so I wanted to revisit the message on judging this morning. Note the scripture, Luke chapter 6, verse 37 Do not judge, and you will not be judged, and do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Interestingly, Jesus is speaking about our uh, horizontal interpersonal interactions. He's not talking about God uh, judging us or condemning us per se. Um, Our relationship with God is dealt with at the cross. But he's talking about how we behave amongst ourselves, one with the other. And uh, he says they, uh, you know, the other folk uh, in the body of Christ, will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Because the way you measure is the way that it's going to be coming back to you. Uh, It's another way of saying that uh, you're going to reap the harvest that you sow. Um, We we just have a way of having things uh, come around. And then Jesus goes on in this passage, speaking to his disciples, to talk about uh, how we are to go about ministering to one another. He talks about the blind leading the blind, and then he talks about taking specks out of your uh, brother's eye, and he doesn't say don't do it, he just says, you know, look in the mirror before you do. Make sure that you're in a position uh, where you can truly be helpful. I gave you some questions on the back of the study guide. I don't know if your small group addressed them. But uh, some of those questions were, name three questionable things over which Christians disagree. Are they truly acts of sin? Support your answer to each with a clear passage of Scripture. Uh, read 1 Corinthians uh, 6, 12-13 and 10, 23-33. What does Paul mean when he says all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable for me? You know, he makes that statement. Uh, All things are lawful, but not everything is beneficial. And he makes choices along those lines. And then, according to the scriptures, who ultimately decides 
apart from clear commandments, what is right or wrong for you to do, support your answer with chapter and verse. I want to start by asking another question this morning. Who is the one who sanctifies you? Now, when I say sanctify, I mean who is the one who makes you look like Jesus? Who is the one who produces holiness in your life? Who's responsible for that? Are you? You know, are you the one that has to read the Bible and figure out how to act uh, and try to try to act like that? No, of course not. We've been over that so many times because that's the problem we have. We can't keep the law. You know, that, that's why grace and the gospel is necessitated is that you and I do not have the strength in ourselves to produce law-abiding righteousness. It's not in us. So then is it my job to sanctify you outside of yourself? Is it your job to sanctify each other? Are we supposed to fix one another? Well, we think so sometimes, but uh, that's right. But you've got to be careful uh, when you go to do that because you, you don't know where you're really treading. The scripture says that God is the one who sanctifies us. And in a very significant passage of scripture back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, um, the story is told of God sending Samuel to anoint one of the sons of Jesse to be the next king. Saul has finally, irrevocably blown it. He has worn out the patience of God, and he's not coming back. His kingdom is over. He hasn't uh, given up the throne yet, but as far as God's concerned, he's kind of done. And God says to Samuel, I want you to go to the sons of Jesse, and I want you to anoint one of those sons to be the next king, and I'm going to show you who it is. And so David, uh, or Samuel goes to Jesse's uh, home, and explains his mission, and Jesse calls all of his sons. I don't know how Samuel did this interview, but he looks at each son, and he you know, probably stops, and they're all standing there in a line, you know, and he stops, and he looks at each one, and, and he's listening for God to say, this is the guy. And, uh, you know, he, he, it's like, no. No. You know, and he goes down the whole line, and none of them are the right person. Now, Samuel is kind of perplexed. And he says to Jesse, is this it? I don't know how they felt, but you know, the other guys, is this all you've got? Um, I, I didn't have God's approval for any one of these. And Jesse says, well, there's the youngest. He's out with the sheep. I didn't call him in. I mean, he's the little guy. He's the runt of the, of the litter. And uh, God says uh, to Samuel, uh, have him bring David in. And when David arrives, Samuel looks at David, and he has the approval of God. And, and God says, this is the one. 
Uh, this is a man after my own heart. This is God's commentary on David. And um, this famous verse is given in verse 7. For God does not judge the way man judges. Man looks on the outside, but God looks at the heart. And we know the story of David. David made some big errors as a king. And in one case, he just out and out rebelled uh, and did what was uh, terrible in God's eyes. And yet, even at the end of his life, God's comment is still the same. David is a man after my own heart. Uh, in spite of his failures, there is in David a heart for God. There is, he loves the Lord. He wants to follow the Lord. He desires to please the Lord. Even when his flesh runs away with him, uh, he repents and he's brokenhearted. Psalm 51 is a, is a, a deep uh, yearning of the heart to come back to fellowship with God and to re be restored in his friendship with God after his great sin with Bathsheba. Because in David's heart is this uh, desire to love and follow and obey the Lord. And God sees that in his heart. And, and he says, I don't look at the outside. I look at the heart of a person. This is my criteria, God's criteria for judgment. I was thinking about that uh, as I was getting ready to bring this message in the first service, and I, I remembered a situation in the life of uh, one of my cousins. Um, he, uh, at one time, was living in, in South Florida um, on a, basically a cattle ranch, which in South Florida is a lot of palmetto and maybe alfalfa fields. Uh, and he was living down there, and at, at one point in time, he called the commandant of MacDill Air Force Base, and he said to him, the next time one of your fighter planes flies over my property, uh, I am going to be out there with a rifle, and I'm going to do my very best to shoot it down. And, uh, you know, you hear that, and it's like, and so the rest of the story is the, the feds came and arrested him and he spent the rest of his life in prison, right? No, that's not the end of the story. The end of the story was the commandant uh, apologized to him and uh, there were no more flyovers of his property. What distinguished my cousin in the way he was treated from a terrorist. Because ordinarily, if you call up a military base and tell the commander that you're going to start shooting at their planes, about 15 seconds from now, you're going to jail. I mean, they're not going to waste any time over that. But the rest of the story is that my cousin was a Vietnam War veteran. And he was a Marine. He happened to have incredibly good hearing, and he was a master marksman. And he often ended up uh, in the role of point in their uh, missions. He was in the siege at Khe Sanh, 
when word came that his father had died of a heart attack and they were under a heavy fire when a helicopter flew in to extract him and get him back home for the funeral. And uh, Mike said, you know, I looked up and he had this crazy thing about the number 13 being his lucky number. And he looked up and said, I saw that the helicopter had a 13 on the side and I knew it was okay to run for it. And uh, he was extracted and came home. But he suffered tremendously from what we now understand as post-traumatic stress syndrome. When he eventually uh, was discharged from the military, from the Marine Corps, and came back home, he was not able to integrate well back in his, um, you know, in his own home and in, in the, the busyness of our uh, town. So he went to live with my grandparents. He hadn't been there very long when a truck backfired on the highway out in front one evening and he literally jumped out of the bed and through the glass window into the shrubbery um, feeling that he was under fire. So when he moved to South Florida um, and essentially moved out on this uh, large uh, cattle ranch uh, to get away from people, to get away from stress, um, he would be out mowing the fields on the tractor. And if you know anything about military fighter pilots, whether it's Air Force or Navy, they, they don't pick those people for being timid and, uh, and gracious and kind-hearted. They're, they're usually the ones that are absolutely dead sure of themselves, snap judgment, they, they just, and they have a, an interesting sense of humor. I remember a Navy fighter pilot telling me how they used to love to to swoop down over the fishing boats and cause this big uh, plume of water about 20 feet high behind them. Of course, when they're going uh, faster than the speed of sound, you can't hear them coming. You only hear them going after they drench the boat and rock it with the waves, you know, and they thought that was great fun. Well, that's what these guys were doing leaving MacDill. They were flying over his ranch and when they uh, saw him on his tractor they were in essence strafing him they would drop down very low and zoom by him and as soon as uh, the roar of the jet was right over him he would bail out off the tractor and try to find somewhere to hide in the ground and it really got to to be nerve-wracking so he called the commandant and he said I'm tired of it this is my story this is my background. Next plane that does that, I'm going to do my best to bring it down. Mark my words. And the commandant had a total change of heart. He was profusely apologetic, and there were no more flyovers of that nature uh, that ended that. The difference between a terrorist and a combat veteran, even though the threat is identical. You know, the problem with you and me messing with one another's lives is we don't know the backstory. We see a behavior, we see an action that a person takes, and we don't understand where it's coming from. Maybe we don't even care where it's coming from. We just don't like what they're doing. And we take it upon ourselves to make a judgment or even to mess with their lives. Now, I'm not 
suggesting to you that we ignore sinful behavior, nor am I suggesting that you ignore uh, dangerous behavior or inappropriate behavior. Nobody's going to let anybody shoot planes down. <laughs> I mean, that's not going to happen no matter what your, your motivation. But the fact of the matter is that we oftentimes don't understand what's going on in a person's life that drives them uh, to do or to act in the ways that they do. And so God's word to us is, I'm the one that sees the heart. I'm the one that looks on the inside. I'm the one that knows. Leave the fixing, the judgment to me. I'm the one who sanctifies. In fact, 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, Jesus is made unto us sanctification. He is our sanctifier. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul says, Now may the God of peace sanctify you entirely, and may you be preserved blameless in complete spirit, soul, and body, and prosper and be in health. In other words, the scripture says, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, God himself undertakes a mission. And that mission is to make us look like him, to develop his character, to build uh, his temperament into us, to, to make us exhibit and manifest the fruit of the Spirit. But he knows where to begin. Two Christians may have the same fault, and God may convict one of them of the sinfulness of that behavior and begin working on it, while the other one moves on down the road with impunity for a season. And you say to yourself, does God have favorites? Does he play fair? Why am I under conviction for this, and my brother is not? But what you don't know is what your brother is under conviction about. Because in your life, that thing may be the big issue that God wants to deal with today. While your brother has another problem that is relatively more important. And so the Holy Spirit is dealing with that problem in that person's life. We don't know where we stand in that process of being made to look like Jesus. So what do we do when we see a problem in a brother or sister's life and uh, we feel like they're, they're out of line and uh, they're, they're not living right? How do we handle that? My recommendation is the first thing that we ought to do is to begin to pray for them. The very first thing we ought to do is to begin to pray for them. Um, this is a freebie. I'm going to give you some marriage advice, but it, it extrapolates to all kinds of relationships. Most people come to the altar of marriage and they take the vows and they say, I promise to love you and to cherish you for better or for worse. And then once they have made that commitment, they set about 
to fix each other. And, uh, you know, the wives want their husbands to shape up. And the husbands want their wives to shape up. And they don't understand why they're not getting fixed faster. In fact, one of the big surprises after you've been married a little bit is that you married another human being. They actually have problems. They have baggage. And, and they're bringing that in with them. And they have these issues, and so we want to fix them. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of insight uh, into marriage, okay? There are some interesting dynamics about being married. There is no, if you're married, there is no person on the planet who is more capable of giving you wings to soar than your spouse. And there is no person on the planet more capable of devastating you and taking all the gumption out of you than your spouse. Married couples have a unique ability to build one another up tremendously or to destroy one another with frustration. And, and no one can, can, can do that like your spouse. Uh, no one else has that kind of power. I, I'm not sure I can explain that, um, but I think it's part of that being one flesh, and, uh, and there's something about it that just makes that a reality. Now, when you kind of take that in the background and you add to that fixing each other, here's a guarantee. If you try to fix your spouse, you know what they're going to do? They're going to dig a trench and, and build a bunker and hunker down for the war. They are not about to change. I know that's stupid, okay? But we're stupid. We do really dumb things. Uh, your spouse can tell you the absolute truth, and you can agree with it. But because they said it, you're not going to do it. it. It's just the wiring. It's like, I'm not going to let this happen. Now, I know it's childish. I know it's stupid. I, I know it creates problems. But I know it happens. So how do, you, how do you fix them? Especially when they're really broke. Go in your closet and start to pray. Because when you pray for someone, a couple of things happen. You start to pray for them, and you may come under conviction. Fancy that. You might be the one with the problem, and God may want to deal with you. But even if you're not the one with the problem, or you both have a problem, God will begin to work by the Holy Spirit. That's what prayer is all about, intercessory prayer. God will begin to work in their life, and He knows how to cut to the chase go past all the defense mechanisms, get down to the heart of the matter, 
and approach you in your spirit in a way that does not destroy you, make you defensive, or get your dander up, God has a way of saying, I love you, take that. And it's like, bring it on. Because God knows just how to do that. And we don't know how to do that very well. We're not very skilled at that. Now I know, and I'm talking in terms of marriage, because that's the relationship where things are really, really toughest. But I'm going to extrapolate that and say it, it works, it applies in any relationship. You know, when you, when you have a good working relationship, a good friendship with another person, the first step to take when you see problems in their life is to pray for them and to ask God to do something in their heart. Now, that's not to say that there's never a time to speak. But the Holy Spirit will tell you when that time comes. It will be an appropriate time when there's an openness and a receptivity and a willingness to learn and, and to listen and, and to say, I, I really want to be different. And God's been talking to me about this. You know, when your spouse comes to you and, and says, God's really been talking to me about this. And you have that kind of freedom in your relationship. And God's really been talking to me. And, and he's been convincing me that I need to do yada, yada, yada. And you say, me, I can't believe it took you this long to figure it out. Now, don't say that. <laughs> but it's like, Lord, it's amazing what you've been doing. Uh, what do you think? Ah, there may be the opening. But don't just drive through it because you've got to ask. Talk to the Lord. Is this the time to have this conversation? Um, because relationships based on trust and love are delicate and they're sensitive. And they need to be approached with great gentleness. Friends, in the church, we're a family it's not my job to fix you. It is my job to explain the scriptures to you. It's my job to lay things out uh, as God gives them. But it's your responsibility to take it to the Lord and find out what He's going to say to you about it. It's not my responsibility to particularly nail you for your failure. I've seen through the years where people in the church have had issues and, you know, and I really wish they would get fixed. Not the issues, the people. <laughs> get fixed. And I start praying for them. And sometimes God says, Martin, you're the problem. You're the one that needs to get fixed. And God begins to deal with me. But I've also seen times when God has actually gone to work. And he has begun to work in the life of another individual to change them or to transform them. And some of the questions I have to ask is, are they damaging the body? Are, are they messing up the church family? Is there a serious problem here that needs confrontation, needs to be addressed? And sometimes as I have prayed over those matters, God has taken it upon himself to do the fixing 
And it's amazing how he does that. And then there are times when people show themselves stubborn and resistant and uh, ornery and aren't listening and it's time to confront and to uh, to deal with it but even so it to to pray that moment into existence is so very important because you can make an awful mess when you jump in yourself there are many things that we struggle with that the Bible does not have a chapter and verse about. I had a number of illustrations in the first hour. I'll try to share a few of those with you. Um, you remember I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, kind of by way of illusion, about uh, women's dress. I mean, that's really, I, I, I'm just a fool for even going there. But anyway, you remember what I said? Uh, I can't believe she left the house like that, you know. Uh, sometimes that kind of judgmental attitude. Um, we live in a highly sexually charged society. Uh, we live in a culture that speaks sex in, in every dimension. It's just everywhere, and we're constantly confronted. And fashions, not just women's but men's as well, fashions are designed um, to, to appeal to the sexual interest and focus. And uh, as a consequence, Christian women uh, oftentimes have, first of all, they have a problem maybe finding things, but uh, secondly, the message of the culture is so strong. Uh, one person has said typically the church is just a little bit delayed. You know, the culture is moving in one direction and the church is just a few steps behind because we know that's wrong, but we don't recognize how far we've come. And we're kind of numb to that. It's like the, the frog in the kettle kind of thing as the water begins to heat up. And we don't realize we're about to boil to death because it was cold when we started. And now things are moving along. Back in the 70s, I remember seeing an article, uh, a, a, a priest of, uh, it wasn't a Catholic church, I'll just say that, but a priest of a church, you know it's not going to be a Catholic church when I'm about to tell you what I'm going to tell you, um, decided that he was looking for a way to make his church grow. And so I'll never forget this article because it was just so... Um, he decided uh, to use rather scantily clad women in hot pants. Um, you remember the rage with hot pants back in the 70s? You know, it's kind of like the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders uniforms today. And um, they were going to serve communion. And that was supposed to bring in the crowds. And I remember seeing a picture, I'm, I'm not kidding you, I remember seeing a picture, you know, of this gal standing there in this little real sexy pose, you know, and she's holding the communion elements with a short top and hot pants, and she looks like a prostitute. And the only thing I can say about that is, it's like the grace of God that the ground just didn't open up and swallow that church like the sons of Korah, because it was lewd, it was inappropriate, it was blasphemous, it was ungodly. And any Christian with a modicum of spiritual appreciation could look at that and say, that's just wrong. I mean, that's just wrong. There's no question about it. There's the other extreme of extreme prudishness of spiritual groups 
that, you know, the women have to wear uh, shapeless dresses that are floor length and lace up shoes and cuffs down to their wrist and high collars and the ultimate in, in prudishness. And somewhere in between these extremes lies the appropriate dress within the culture. I mentioned two weeks ago that culture did have an influence in this whole subject. And I talked about the Dani tribes people and uh, how their culture <laughs> made things very appropriate that we would consider totally outlandish, uh, and rightfully so. So how do you determine what is appropriate and not appropriate? May I suggest that that's a matter that each person has to take before God. And if we find that someone is really out of line, we have to begin by praying that the Holy Spirit speak to the individual, that he, that he deal with that. It's a very delicate matter to go barging in trying to tell someone how they have to dress. You don't know where they are in the Lord. You don't know how new they are. They may not even be genuinely born again. They may be coming to church seeking and, and hungry and looking for answers and to make them feel uncomfortable or ostracized in any way is really taking a huge chance. A person's salvation is not worth that. And so we have to be prayerful about those things because there's not a passage of Scripture that says, you know, exactly what a woman's dress should look like other than the fact that it should be fitting women of godliness. And Paul mentions a few things that we frankly totally ignore now because they were peculiar to his culture and not to ours. Another area, I think, where... Uh, is of a similar nature to discussions churches get into. I remember when we used to have an evening service and we would always have a discussion about Super Bowl Sunday. Do you have church on Super Bowl Sunday night? And the discussion always went along the lines of, well, nobody's going to be here. Well, yeah, but we're uh, saying something about our priorities and values if we cancel. And, and we get all knotted up in these convoluted kinds of discussions. I grew up a Southern Baptist, and you know what the Sunday night service was called? It was the Sunday night evangelistic service. It was the evangelistic service because the Sunday night service was intended to bring unbelievers to church in order to win them to Christ. And the reason it was Sunday night is because historically, when the gas lights were invented, um, churches installed them and it became an attraction. And unbelievers, in fact, the community would show up to, to see this, you know, to have this nice gas lit room. And Sunday night services became popular because you could light them. Before that, you know, you didn't have very good ways of lighting the auditorium. 
There's nothing in the New Testament about a Sunday night service. You can't even find that. In fact, you can talk about Sunday school, and the original Sunday school movement began to teach inner-city children how to read and write. It didn't begin in the New Testament. We get so confused about those kinds of things, and we want to fuss and argue about stuff that we need to look at carefully and say, God, what's the deal here? Now, it may say something about our values if we change our regularly scheduled services for a football game. It may say something about our values. It may also be just common sense. I don't know. Uh, but my point is, there's not a chapter and verse to tell a church what is right or wrong. And however the leadership ultimately decides the issue, if you disagree with them, it's not a matter of judgment. Because it's not a matter of scripture. It's a matter of one's opinion that may be prayerfully put together, but it is the responsibility of leadership in that case to make a decision and the responsibility of the congregation to support it and to leave the disagreement off the table. It, you can't argue it biblically. There's another interesting dilemma that we're going to face very soon, and the church is going to have some interesting discussions about this. Do you know what it is? Legalization of marijuana. The boulder has started to roll, no pun intended, and the avalanche is soon to follow. And I would predict, I'm not a prophet, but I would say within five years, marijuana will be legal in every state in the Union. It's inevitable. It's going that direction. Now, if, if you're asking me today, right now, can I as a Christian smoke marijuana? My answer to you is, absolutely not. It's sin. Because it's against the law. And I do have a chapter and verse for that. You know, we are, we are to obey the law, and it's against the law. So, yes, it's sin. But what happens when it's no longer against the law? And the days of prohibition are long gone, and we're going to have to face the question of how do Christians respond to the issue of marijuana? Christianity Today has already carried an article about the issue. How are we going to work through that? Where's the chapter and verse? Actually, I think I can give you one, but <laughs> that's beside the point. I can give you a lot of chapters and verses about excessive drinking, uh, but I can't give you any about moderate drinking. And so uh, we have all these issues. And how are we going to decide for our brother? What are you going to do when you go to a Bible study and you find out that the person next to you that you've admired so much smokes weed and has for years but now they're out in the open because they don't have to worry about getting prosecuted and it's like ah what about this now am i condoning marijuana i am not condoning marijuana did you get that on tape david <laughs> i am, i am not condoning i am not advocating but anyway um my point is we have to pray for each other 
and walk with each other and love each other in all of these kinds of decisions where the scriptures do not have a direct comment about their sinfulness or not. We have got to give liberty and let the Holy Spirit be the sanctifier. It's not our job. Um, and the other thing I had down, and I'm <clears throat> about out of time, but you're not the crowd I need to say it to anyway. Did I say that out loud? It's contemporary music. Contemporary Christian music. Oh, boy. Uh, that still sparks all kind of arguments, you know. And yet, they didn't like Charles Wesley's music when he introduced it. And they didn't like Isaac Watts when he introduced it. And people don't like change more than anything else. It's not whether it's godly or ungodly, it's whether it speaks your heart language or not. That becomes the issue. Congregations should never divide over those kinds of things. The scripture says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. We have a great responsibility to love each other to be caring for one another, to be encouraging to one another, to listen to one another, to pray for one another, and to allow God to be God in our midst and to do His work. Sometimes our well-meaning spiritual surgery only ends up in people bleeding out on the table. And we need to be careful about how we go about fixing each other. Uh, for the most part, it's better, better handled in prayer. When those times come, when you really have to just deal with an issue, then the scriptural admonition is also very clear. First, look in the mirror. Go in a spirit of gentleness and of grace and love. Paul says to the Galatians, you who are spiritual, correct such a person in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself lest you be tempted. We have to recognize that when we go to fix somebody else, we are in a moment of extreme vulnerability ourselves. Because we're, we're going into a very sensitive area. We had better be going in the Spirit with gentleness and love and tenderness. And, and you know the first question that we need to ask? We need to ask, whatever the issue is, you know, when, when you did thus and so the other day, I, I felt this way. It, it, it hurt me. It made me sad. It, it angered me or whatever. I felt angry. Would you mind helping me understand why you did that. And then, don't worry about what you're going to say next. Open your ears and close your mouth and listen to what they have to say. My cousin would say, whenever a plane flew over my head, it was life-threatening danger. That's why I jump off the tractor and why I don't like it. We need to hear each other and listen for the explanation. And then we can talk about the behavior.
and the action and how it affected us, hopefully with much greater understanding. Well, I guess I should quit because my voice is about gone, huh? So uh, I want to remind, uh, if you're on the leadership team, we have a prayer meeting downstairs in the library in just a few moments. Uh, Let's pray together as we conclude. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Open our hearts to receive it. Teach us to be gracious, humble, gentle, loving people who truly care for each other and nurture one another and encourage one another. Show us how to stimulate each other to love and good deeds instead of knocking the wind out of our sails, learning how to build up and exhort and affirm. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.